0: Just a couple of announcements real quick before we dive in. First, if uh, parents, if you have not sent your kids downstairs yet for True Fire, you can do that now um, and get them down there. But every week now, um, 9.50 till 10.10, we'll be out in the lobby, uh, ready to check them in, and then they'll just head straight downstairs for their um, whole 90-minute service down there. So excited about that change. Um, In your mailboxes today. If you are a member or partner here, uh, you got one of these from the South Dakota Department of Social Services, and they are planning and are putting together something called a safety plan provider. Um, I didn't realize that there wasn't a date on here, so there was nothing in the program, um, but next, the next two weeks it'll be in there, but it's on August the 19th. There's an informational meeting about it. Um, August the 19th at 1215, and then again, it's 7 o'clock that night. Both meetings are the same. And so if you read through that later on, not during the sermon, not right now, because you can't read and listen to me. So um, as you read that later on, um, you, if you're interested in it, uh, we'll put that date in the program and send out some more information on it. I do believe it's on our church uh, website calendar also. You can find it on there. And it's at the First United Methodist Church, so please be watching for that. Also, we're going to be moving the date of our family meeting um, from August 11th, there's a few things that we want to do at the board meeting prior to that meeting, um, and our board meeting is scheduled that week on like the 15th, and so um, we'll try to get that date out to you uh, as soon as we can when we when we get that changed. And I do want to, one more time, um, today is day, I don't know what day, 15, I think it is in the book, and uh, I read it actually yesterday, I don't know why I read day 15 yesterday, but Um, It's on bitterness and unforgiveness, and so I'd encourage you um, to read with us during this time, because it really is preparing my heart, at least, for thinking through eternity. Not just looking at life today, but looking at life through the lens of eternity, and uh, preparing our hearts for the State Fair outreach, and so, hope you've been a part of that. And if you haven't, just start on day 15 and go with us. So, Today, our series, First Love, is actually going to transition. Today is going to be the last day of our First Love series from Revelation chapter 2. It's part 6. And we're going to transition beginning next week into a series that, as I said earlier in the service, is Seek First. So First Love, Seek First, and Seeking First the Kingdom of God, and what that looks like and what that means. I'm convinced that every one of us in this room would articulate, we are seeking first the Kingdom of God. The question of whether or not we are actually doing that in our lives um, would be the, the, the question. And that's what we're gonna try to, to look and pick into over the next uh, several weeks. And I'm going to pick into it a little bit today, so try not to get angry with me. I'm going to try to say it with a smile on my face, because some of the stuff you may not like, and you may think, I don't agree with that, and that's okay. You don't have to agree with everything I say, but you do need to go like the the believers, the Bereans, to the Word, and make sure that what you don't like that I'm saying is actually based on this book and not on our personal preferences. And so, if it's my personal preference, you don't have to like it, but if it's God's Word, well, then I don't know what to tell you. So you're going to have to maybe wrestle with him a little bit more on that one. But last week, Mark brought a great word about marriage and how God is glorified in a marriage relationship. So if you missed it, you need to hear it. I don't know that it would be, it wasn't meant to be part of first love, but I feel like it fits in the series very well. And so it's part of the series. So this is actually part seven. Now that we just changed it, see how we do things here around here. Um, and he actually said that God is glorified in a marriage relationship. He is seen by people in a way he can't be seen in a single person. And you know, you got to go back and listen to him because that's probably offended all the single people in the room. Um, he did it better than I just did. And so you got to go back and listen to it. But it's interesting because as I was listening this week, I'm like, well, that's so funny because the point of our sermon today is that God is actually seen in a unified body of believers more than he is in any individual believer. So it's the same concept, just a a different focus. And so this one now applies to all of us. If we were single last week, we were like, how does this apply to me? Well, glad you asked because it's right now and it's going to apply to you. But just a real quick recap for maybe those of you that haven't been here. This comes from Revelation chapters 2 and 3, seven letters to seven specific churches, and there was a message to each of them. And this specific church received a message that is also applicable to us, um, because all of God's word is applicable to us in some way. And Jesus, as he's writing to these people, says, you guys are doing a lot of good stuff. You work hard, you persevere under persecution, you don't tolerate wicked people, you test those who claim to be apostles and you find them false, you've persevered and endured hardships for my name, and you've done all of this without getting weary, and you hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. And so he didn't say you hate the Nicolaitans. Okay? You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, that's an important thing there. And he says there's only one thing that you're not doing so good. But In our American mindset, we're all like, wow, big list of stuff we're doing right. One little thing we're doing wrong, we're probably, average. that's about a 90%, so that's good. But in the kingdom, it's not. Because if you do all of this, but you miss this, and the reason he's pointing it out is because it's more important than all of that. In fact, all of this is supposed to flow out of this one thing, but they were just doing this without this one thing. And that one thing was they stopped insisting, maintaining, and insisting upon first love. And Jesus is clear. He tells them to repent or turn because you're doing this. Now turn and come back to this priority of love. And as we've defined that word love or first, first doesn't just mean first in line. It means first as in most important. So this is not just a call to start acting the way you did while ago this is a call to act like we're supposed to act as we're commanded to in the book what comes first what's the most important priority for some of us we do a lot of good works but Christ isn't really first in our lives a lot of church today a lot of Christians we've accepted Jesus into our heart we just haven't surrendered and we sing I surrender all but we don't live I surrender all I actually go around singing, I surrender some, all the time. All to Jesus, or some to Jesus, I surrender. I mean, and people are always like, why are you singing that? I'm like, well, if we're going to live it, we might as well sing it too. And it's it's kind of a joke, it's a parody, but it's kind of true. And what we do is I'll write a big check over here to missions, given to missions, a lot more than 10%, praise God, and we're doing it to compensate for disobedience over here. I go to church every time the doors are open, perfect attendance. But we're not loving the people when we actually go there, so compensating. And that's what this church is doing. God has lost his priority in their lives. They're doing a lot of good stuff, it's just he's not first. And not only is he not first, but his people are not first in people's lives. And that word love is the love based on the character of God. It means to sacrifice ourselves or empty ourselves for the benefit of others. So anything less is not first love. And so I'd encourage you to go back. That's a real brief synopsis. But you could go back, listen to the messages online if you want to rehear them. Even if you've heard them once, I'd encourage you to hear them again. Um, Sometimes I listen to a sermon I preach and I learn stuff too. (laughs) But actually, I learn things I shouldn't do. (laughs) But same thing, so you can listen to it again, and uh, then you can grow and learn, and it'll be great. But today, part six, contending with man, or I actually should have put contending with men, plural, not just man, but... Uh, it's, it's a typo. And if you want to go to Genesis 32, it's on page 29 of the, the Bibles there in your seats if you want to use one of those. But Genesis 32, we're going to read this rather odd story that we read last time um, that I was with you about Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau are twin sons of Abraham, or not Abraham, of Isaac, so they're grandsons of Abraham. Jacob's name, big, big important thing here, Jacob's name means deceiver. That's what his name means. So, you know, those of you that chose Jacob for your child, what were you thinking? It's like, uh, but, you know, for us, names aren't a big deal. We just pick kind of haphazardly most of the time in our culture. But for them, this was his name, deceiver. And he lived up to his name. He deceived his brother into giving his up his birthright. He deceived his father into giving him the blessing that was reserved for the firstborn. But please do not misunderstand. Esau was not a victim, okay? He chose to sell his birthright, even though his brother deceived him, he chose to sell his birthright, and the scripture's clear on that later in Hebrews, it says, don't be immoral and godless like Esau, who gave up something that he should have held close, he gave it up for a momentary pleasure, okay, there's a whole lot in there, but we don't have time to preach that sermon today, so then Jacob, because Esau's mad at him, uh, gonna kill him, he runs off, he goes, and he finds a wife for himself in his, his mom's homeland, And uh, it's interesting because he gets a taste of his own medicine, and he wants to marry this girl named Rachel. And uh, you got to remember, there's a veil over her face, so he can't see her face until they go in to the tent. They consummate the marriage, and then lo and behold, it's her older sister, Leah. Oh, what are you doing? You tricked me. You know, you do reap what you sow. (laughs) I mean, it's right there. But he gets to marry Rachel too, and then there's this conflict in the family because he loves Rachel, but he doesn't love Leah, so God gives Leah children, Rachel's barren, and so it's this whole back and forth. And actually, she Rachel sells Jacob, who's supposed to come to bed with her tonight, I'm going to sell him to Leah for some mandrakes. I've never had a mandrake, but they must be pretty good. I mean, so that's all I'm gonna say about that one. So here we are. Jacob now is coming back. He's gonna reunite with his brother Esau. If I was Jacob, I would have picked a different land, but he knows he needs to come back and reunite with his brother Esau, okay? And he comes back the night before is where we're picking up the story. So Genesis 32, verse 22, during the night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two servant wives, and his 11 sons, and crossed the Jabbok River with them. After taking them to the other side, he sent all of his possessions. This left Jacob alone in the camp. And a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of socket. The man said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Listen, your name will no longer be Jacob. The man told him from now on, you will be called Israel because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. His name was changed because he had fought with God and men and won. And we use the word contend contending, and I'll define it for you in a moment. And I don't like the word won because winning uh, implies that we have a loser, okay? And there's no loser in this story. There's only winners. And so this is great for the American culture that loves everyone to be getting a participation trophy. There's only winners because Jacob prevailed is actually the word. And a few weeks ago, I preached on contending with God or prevailing with God, not against God. You don't beat God. Okay, he prevailed with God. In other words, he overcame in the sense that he received his reward, the promise. He became the father of the nation of Israel, which is what his name was. And that word fought or the word contend means to exert strenuous effort, persist, persevere. And just a quick synopsis of what it means to contend with God, this is what I said to, the, to us two weeks ago. Remember, if you're going to serve God and it always has to make sense or you're going to serve God as long as everything goes the way you want it to go, you might as well just close your Bible, walk out this door because you're wasting your time. Because it will not always make sense. It will not always go the the way you want it to go. And sometimes you will be contending with God. You will be exerting strenuous effort. You will need to persist and you will need to persevere. You will walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You will battle fear and regret and hurt and misunderstanding. It will not always go smoothly. It can't. It can't. And there were three principles I gave you to overcome or prevail with God as you contend with God. One, you have to be willing to be alone with God. And that doesn't mean you just have a quiet time every day. It means you have to be willing to feel abandoned by everyone. You have to be willing to get your feelings hurt. You have to be willing to walk through wilderness seasons when it feels like you're alone. And if you're not willing to do that, you're not going to make it. Because there are going to be those moments, but he is always with you. And when you feel alone, you remind yourself, I am not alone. You have to be willing, number two, to be broken. I know in our culture, the reason that bad stuff happens to me or the reason that things aren't going right in my life is always someone else. I mean, my marriage is a mess because of my spouse. No, we learned last week, your spouse is not the problem in your marriage. You are. At least you're the only part you can do anything about. But we want to deflect. We want to blame everyone else. And there's not a willingness to be broken. We have to be willing to be broken. And we have to be willing to hold on to the end. Because sometimes, in fact, all of these in Hebrews chapter 11 who were commended for their faith didn't even see what they were promised. They died without seeing it. Are you willing to die without seeing what you've been promised? You have that kind of faith in God? And the only way to get that kind of faith in God is to exert strenuous effort, persist, persevere, contend. So, contending with God, but now contending with men and prevailing is a little bit harder. I mean, I know that some people contend with God and they they get offended at God and they walk away from God because God didn't come through the way they wanted Him to come through and they don't persist and persevere. But for the most part, we don't have a problem contending with God because He's perfect and He loves us and He demonstrated it. But contending with men, (laughs) that's a whole other story, isn't it? Because men are imperfect. We're not perfect. And yet we claim to be okay with that. (laughs) But in reality, a lot of times we're not okay with that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. How to contend with men and overcome. And again, contending with men and overcoming is not about winning over them or overcoming them. That's not what it means. It has more to do with me than it does them. Just the same way that overcoming God did not have anything to do with God. It had everything to do with me. And as I learn to contend with God and men, our identity gets formed. Okay, Jacob's name, don't miss this, Jacob's name got changed because he contended with God and men and he prevailed. Our identity as believers is formed as we contend with God and men and prevail. Now, our identity is set in the cross, but it gets formed in reality through strenuous effort. Through many hardships, we enter the kingdom of God. So this isn't about being right. This isn't about putting people in their place. This isn't exalting ourselves or even learning how to fix other people. This is about how to let other people bring out in us the character of God instead of the reactions of the flesh. That's what contending with men is all about. So to start, let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, Christy talked about this at the keyboard today. The new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. It's done. You cannot add anything to your identity in Christ. It's set because of what he did for you. But you can let it come out of you into reality where everyone else can see it. Okay, that's what is happening when we contend with men. And so I believe that we enter the kingdom, as the Bible says, through hardship and difficulty. But I also believe that our relationships with other people are absolutely vital to bringing out the identity of God in our lives. I believe it's biblical. I believe there's a foundation for it in Scripture. Just the same way that we need hardships to show or prove our faith, we need people in our lives to help show and our faith, and I probably won't be able to lay the foundation the way you hope me to, um, but if you don't agree with me, let's have coffee, and we'll talk about that one, but Revelation chapter 1, here's an important verse, all glory to him, to God, who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us, right, we sang that too, He made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father, all glory and power to him forever and ever. Did you catch the the key word in that? Us. Us. He didn't make you into a kingdom of priests. He made us into a kingdom of priests. And everything I'm about to say from this moment on is go to, going to fly into the face of our American individualistic culture where all I need is me and Jesus. That is an unbiblical, non-kingdom principle. It's not what God said. In fact, God is in us. God himself is in us. Let us make man in, his, in our image. And for us to think that we can serve us as an I is false. And it's trickled into the American culture, church. And so now, church is what we do we come in, we go out. And it's not us, it's I. Get comfortable. The work of first love is to love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all of our strength. But the second part of it is to love our neighbor as ourself. And I believe the test of where my relationship with God really is, is where my earthly relationships are. It's easy for me to deceive myself and think I'm becoming like Jesus when I'm all by myself. But the test is actually how I treat others and how I respond to them. Let me let you in on a little secret. I am, hands down, the best follower of Jesus Christ on the planet in the morning before anyone else wakes up with my Bible and my coffee and my dog. The best! You will not find anyone who's as good of a follower as Jesus as me. But the moment other people wake up, not so much. The moment I go to work, not so much. The moment I get in the car and have to drive through town, not so much. You see, so... Did I change? Was I really a better follower of Jesus? No, I just deceived myself in when it was just me and Jesus and the Bible and coffee. Oh, but it was the relationships with other people that actually showed me what I need to work on. And yeah, it's because you're all bad drivers. (laughs) That's what we like to think. No, 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 no. It has nothing to do with the other people. It's all here and I have to own it. And we don't want to own it. We want to push it down. In fact, we isolate ourselves from the body of Christ because we either we've been hurt in the past and so I don't want to get hurt again or I don't really need anybody, which, by the way, the Bible says we do. We'll get to that. And so, But we need resistance. That's the only way you grow. As a coach, no pain, no gain. If you don't push yourself beyond what you pushed yourself yesterday, if there's not resistance, if there's not pain, good pain, you don't grow. And so for us to think that we should all be monks with our Bible somewhere and be the best followers of Jesus, that's false. The same way you need hardships and trials to enter the kingdom because that's where your your faith is tested, you need other people. Uh huh. You need lots of imperfect ones. You don't just need perfect people. Because I know we all go to church and we all have certain people in the church that we hang around and talk to because they're like us and they're, they don't rub us the wrong way. Those good people won't help you. You need the imperfect ones around you because that provides the resistance you and I need to not deceive our. see when Jesus taught on this in Matthew chapter 7 the most misunderstood scripture in all of the land you know judge not because you will be also judged and Jesus says why are you looking at the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye deal with the log in your own eye so that you are able to see the speck in your brother's eye and what we misunderstand is it's not about the speck at all in fact the reason I see the speck is because of my log does it make sense? So I don't even need to deal with their spec. What I need to be dealing with is, why does the spec bother me? That's the log. Do you, I mean, does it make sense? I mean, we see the flaws of other people. Some people think they're prophetic because they can see flaws in other people. You're not prophetic, you're human. Everybody can see flaws in other people. Why do the flaws in other people bother us? That's the log we need to deal with. Because if we don't deal with it, we're going to go to them and we're going to poke their eye out trying to get that speck out. And we have made that passage of Scripture so many things. And so many of us have contended with men, but we've gotten weary because we've gotten bitter, we've gotten offended, we've gotten hurt, we've withdrawn, we've isolated, we've given up on those people, and we give all these spiritual excuses like, you know, I'm a private person. I'm just, I'm a private person. I don't need, I'm just, I'm private. And I'm just going to serve God in my unbiblical, isolated way, which goes against the nature of God. God is glorified in kingdom community. I'm going to show you. Jeremiah 29:11. We're going to start there. Mark preached this just last week. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and to give you a future. And we put it on a graduation card. Where are our graduates? Graduate up there. Oh, God has plans for you, graduate. I put it on your card and he's got plans for you. And the problem is, we miss the most important word in this passage. You. You're like, well, we didn't miss it. You. Ah, but see in English, the word you... Singular, and the word you, plural, are the same word. In Greek and Hebrew, not so much. So if you go to a Greek or Hebrew Bible and you look up words, you understand some of the promises that we take out as individualistic Americans, God has plans for you individual, are actually God has plans for you corporately. And so we serve God individually. Yay, I serve God individually when he, all his plans for you individually are actually corporate because he gets the most glory from corporate. It, do, it doesn't mean he doesn't have individual plans for you. Don't get me wrong. That's not wrong. What Mark told you last week about the individual plan, and the individual plan he had for you last week was your marriage. <laughs> I mean, how about that? The, it's the same concept. And by the way, if you don't go out and buy an English or a Greek or Hebrew Bible, because I think we would read the Scriptures different if we knew which use were plural and which use were singular, because it changes everything. I mean, it really does, because it forces me to be in relationship with people that I might not want to be in relationship with at my preference, but if it's a plural you and I want to receive the promise of that, I better get in relationship with plural you. Make sense? Just buy a King James Bible. I texted you this. You didn't even respond. I thought for sure you'd be curious. I finally found a use (laughs) for the King James Bible. (laughs) It's not just a decoration. King James Bibles actually translate you singular and you plural differently. They do. Whenever it says you, ye, or your, that is plural. I have to look because I don't read King James enough to know. Whenever it says thee, thou, or thy, that's singular. So you can actually test it. Just get a King James Bible. Keep it on the shelf. I mean, if you want to read it all the time, praise God. But, you know, whenever you want to know when you read you in the Bible and you can't tell from the context, just grab King James, open him up, and you'll find out. Plural, singular, and it should change Everything for you. Because as a church, we have been telling you and, and saying as a part of our church, God goes after the one lost. He goes after the one. He's all about the one. But don't forget, He goes after the one to bring them back into the fold. And so, yeah, we go after the one. We're all about going after the one, but going after the one to bring them into the us. And us isn't just restoration. Church, us is every church, every believer, every person who's in the kingdom, us. It's way bigger than just this little group. And that's what God's bringing us into. In Ephesians chapter 3, God's purpose in all of this was to use the church To display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan carried out through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. Did you get that? The rulers of this world, so all the powers, principalities, darkness, dark things that are out there, Paul says they wouldn't have crucified the Lord if they would have known what it was going to do. And now Paul here says God's plan, they still don't even know what's going on, but God's plan is to reveal it to them through the church. The problem for us is we have no idea what church means. For us, church has become a building. It's become a service. Hey, are you going to church today? You can't go to church. Church is a group of people. The word church in the Bible is the Greek word ekklesia. And that means an assembly or a community. Church is not a meeting time. It's not a method. It's not a location. It's not a building. It's not a program. It's not a structure. It's not a denomination. And most of what we call church isn't even based on the Bible. It's based on the cultures that came out of them. Most of them date to the time of Martin Luther. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the idea that we come and we listen to one person teach us and then we all go out and do something based on what that one person did, that's not biblical. And it doesn't mean we can't do cultural things as a church. Please hear me. We can do cultural things as a church as long as they do not hinder the biblical things. But what we've done is we've created a culture where one person or a group of hired people do the ministry and everyone else just sits and watches it be done. That's not the church. And there's no command to meet on a certain day at a certain time. It's cultural. There's not not even a command to own property. We didn't own property as churches until Constantine. That doesn't mean we have to scrap everything and go back, but if we find that anything is actually hindering the church from actually growing and being the church, let's get rid of it. Church is about being a community. It's about being a family. And most of the time we barely know each other because we walk in two minutes before church starts or ten minutes after, and we leave right away. And just being here for a few hours on a Sunday, other than the people that are in our little clique that we talk to once in a while, do we even know who's here? Are we engaged in their lives? Are we willing to sell property when they have a need? That's the church. But we're all really uncomfortable right about now, and we hope pastor moves on soon. I'm not saying I do. I'm saying, holy cow, where have I gone? What have we done? How do we become what he's said? And most of the church now feels like we have been called. When I say church, I don't just mean us. I mean church universally. Most of us have feel like we've been called to make the world a better place. Can I tell you, we have not been called to make the world a better place. This world and all that it has will one day be destroyed. That's the end. We have called to be a better place. We haven't been called to transform the world. We have been called to be a transformed place in the world. When he says, come out and be separate, he's not saying, don't have anything to do with them. He's saying, be different. Be a community of believers that everybody looks at and sees my glory. And we have made it. We got to tell people, don't look at pornography. Don't be homosexual. Don't have sex before you're married. Don't smoke. Don't drink. Don't do all these bad sins. And we wonder why they don't see the glory of God in it. Because he's called us to be a separate community. Not how we dress or wear our clothes. But how we treat people. And when we start getting this and doing this, the world is going to look and see God's glory as it is. What they see is what they have in their community. John Nugent, if you don't know who John Nugent is, that's okay. He's just a guy that's way smarter than all of us. But he says this, our responsibility from God is not to make the world a better place but to be the better place that God has begun in this world through Christ. We are his kingdom work. We are ambassadors who proclaim what God has done, is doing, and will do. God's strategy is for his people not to fix this world, but to plant a new world right in the midst of the old one and to woo the old world to himself through it. As followers of Jesus, the body of Christ, the new humanity, and new creation is us. We are the new world that has already broken into the old world. A new creation has already begun in the midst of the old world that remains. It is the new world of God's kingdom and its people. That's profound. I wish I had thought of that. I could have wrote that book and gotten that money, but I didn't, so I just gave it to you. But Jesus himself said this by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you agape one another. So, everything we've talked about in First Love, if it's a reality in our kingdom relationships in the body of Christ, the world will see it. But here's the thing <clears throat> it can't be pick and choose. It can't be my preference, your preference. It can't be this person, but not that person. It can't be this activity, but not that activity. It can't be, you know, on the times I want to or don't want to. It's either really an all or nothing type of community. In John chapter 17, Jesus said, Father, I and them, and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them as much as you've loved me. How will the world know that? That God sent Jesus and that He loves them as much as He loved me. If we pick it, if we hand out tracts, if we, you know, have signs and wonders, I mean, all of those are good things, but that's not where it is. They're not seeing the glory of God because it's not on the church, because the church is not being the ecclesia. We're being an organization. We're being like the Kiwanis Club. We show up for lunch every once in a while, we talk about each other's families and say, hey, how are things going? And then we go and do our own thing everywhere else. And if I, if, hey, my preference, I don't really like the Qantas Club anymore. I don't like how they do things, so I'm going to go join the Lions Club. They do it the way I like it. And that's what we do. Most church growth in America is in people getting saved and coming into the church. It's, I didn't like that church and the way they did things over there, so I prefer this one and I go over to this one. And we even add a little, well, you know those people in that church? you know how they act or that pastor or that person or this guy over here? And we wonder why people aren't seeing the glory of God on the church So the question that I have for you actually comes from a guy named Frank Viola. My question to you and every other Christian who's a part of the church today is this. Is your life together embodying God's kingdom to the world around you? If so, how? If not, what needs to change in me? Let me give you three quick points. Looks like I have about five minutes per point. Let's see how I do on how we can be the church, the ecclesia. And this is where we're going in the future, so if I don't get it all done, we'll just come back next week. One, connection is a choice. Connection is a choice. First Corinthians 12, 18, and 21. But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where He wants it. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't Need you? You see, you and I can sit here today and blame other people for our lack of connection in the body of Christ, but ultimately it's our choice. It's our choice to stay hurt, to be isolated, to be offended. It's our choice to suffer alone or to suffer in silence or to say, I'm a private person. I don't need to tell anyone this, but let me ask you this. When we say, I'm a private person, I don't need to tell people what's going on in my life. Is it your preference or is it God's directive? Does God want us to be engaged in each other's lives and to bear each other's burdens? How can someone bear your burden if you don't tell them what the burden is? And I know we'll be like, oh, well, but you got to be wise. You gotta, can't share your burden with everybody. You might get hurt. Okay, let me say this as super nice as I can. Jesus warned us we're, we're about to get hurt. And you know who's going to hurt you? Your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're going to hurt you. I mean, settle it now. They're going to do it because here's, here's a little secret. You've already done it and you're going to do it again. You have already hurt brothers and sisters in Christ. And I don't say that to condemn you or make you feel guilty, but as a reality. Everyone in this room has hurt someone in the church. We've done it and we'll do it again. Hopefully we'll get better at it But chances are it's going to happen. And we always, we say things like, well, you know, I've tried to connect to that person in the past. Have you tried 490 times yet? Because if we're supposed to forgive 70 times 7 times, I would guess we're supposed to try to connect 70 times 7 times. I wish I could sit here today and say, yep, that's me, follow me as I follow Christ. And I'm sitting here today saying, guys, it's time we start following Christ. Together. If we see a need in the body but we don't respond to the need, how can God's love be in us? And we all have our reasons and excuses for not connecting to the body or not stepping out or doing whatever God's called us to do. But I want you to imagine today you are standing before Christ. It's judgment day. You're at the judgment seat of Christ. All of us as believers will stand there. And I want you to take that excuse, that reason you have in your mind for not connecting to the the local body of Christ, and I want you to voice it right now to him. And if you feel like that's going to be an embarrassment for you on that day, Stop using it today. Because I don't want you to be embarrassed on that day. I'd rather us be a little embarrassed and uncomfortable today than on that day. So if we're not going to do, do step one, connection is a choice, you and I should just close these doors and stop it because our meeting together is actually doing more harm than good. It's actually bringing a reproach on the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said to the Corinthian church. When you are not actively showing love to each other, what you're doing is more harm than good. Now, he didn't tell them to close the doors. But if we're not willing to repent and make this a connection as a choice, we should scrap it and start over. Galatians 6.10. Therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone. Everyone. That's our calling. We should do good to everyone. Every time there's an opportunity, we should do good. But also, especially to those in the family of faith. Especially to those in the family of faith. And I know we talk a lot about the preferences of our guests here at Restoration Church, and we want to prefer people. But did you know the Bible actually says prefer others over yourself? does say that. And when we talk about preferring others, it's not that the rest of us don't count or matter. We all matter. In fact, the only way those guests are going to see the glory of God is if we together as a church are meeting one another's needs. But we do have to understand there's a huge difference between preference and need that we don't always understand in our culture. I mean, sometimes we use the word can't and won't interchangeably. Do you understand what I mean? When we say someone says, hey, can you help me? And I say, well, I really can't. And I don't really mean I can't because can't implies impossibility. I can't, it's not possible. But won't means I'm choosing not to. And it's okay to won't. It's okay to say to someone, I I won't be able to help you today because I'm choosing to do this instead. It's a choice. But when I say I can't, what I'm really doing is I'm afraid to admit it's a won't. And so I'm just going to say I can't. And it's not that I don't have the money to help you. It's that I won't help you. It's not that I don't have the time to help you. I do have the time to help you. I just won't help you. And so at least let's start owning up to our can'ts and our won'ts and our preferences and our needs and make sure that when we speak, we're actually speaking. Because that's the point of connection. We're being honest. We're being real with one another. And if someone says, I won't be able to help you, don't get offended at them. If they have chosen to spend time with their family or have chosen to do another activity and they won't help you this time, they won't help you this time. Maybe don't ask them on the day of the event next time. Maybe give them a week's notice and maybe they'll be able to help you that time. But see, that's what we do. We're like, hey, uh, I I totally forgot I had this thing even though, you know, so would you help me? No, I won't be able to help you. Oh, you you call yourself a Christian. How do you, mean, you don't, I mean, don't look at the log in my eye that I have no time management skills, or I should have wrote that on a calendar, or it's nothing to do with me, it's all your fault. That's how we act in the body of Christ. Someone said they wouldn't help us, so we just go to another church, because that church never helps. One time. I know, it's getting a little real, so let's move on. Number two, staying connected is a choice. 2 Corinthians 5.15, he died for everyone, Jesus, so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves or their preferences. Instead, they will live for him who died and was raised for them. So we have stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. We need to stop evaluating people from a human point of view. Here's a statement that you should write down. No other person in my life needs more grace than I have already received. No other person in my life needs more grace than I have already received. And anytime we take an offense or anytime we allow ourselves to be hurt by someone, we have forgotten we needed the exact same amount of grace that person does, it's just in a different area. we need to bear with one another. And what happens is you and I have these filters through which we view other people. Some of it is shaped by our upbringing. If I had an abusive father, when I see someone else's father, I view them in a certain way. When I hear about God being my father, I view them in a certain way because of my upbringing. Sometimes our culture causes us to view people that way. We view people of other ethnicities sometimes through a cultural lens. But in the kingdom, we're supposed to take those lenses off. There is no culture. There is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no man or woman. We're to take off those lenses. Sometimes it's because of how we've seen them or encountered them in the past. But here's the thing. Every encounter you've had with someone in the past isn't always a true encounter. Sometimes you had a filter on when you encountered them in the past. So now, everything that person's doing, you are viewing through their past mistakes, through your culture, through your upbringing, through your personality, and you've labeled them. So they have no chance. Everything they say is going to be filtered through that. Everything they do is going to be filtered through it. And you know what it does? It produces misunderstandings. This happens all the time in churches. If you are mad at me when I'm preaching, or you have already made up your mind what I'm like, and you don't spend any time with me outside of this room, you probably filter what I say up here through that lens. But if you get closer to me, you might filter it through a different lens. We do it all the time with preachers on television. If I say Joel Osteen, filter... It's already there. And it's not that everything Joel Osteen says is not true. There's a lot of good stuff that, these, that's, that people on TV that preach, there's a lot of good they say. But we write them off because, hey, he said that one thing, remember? Or he believes that this is true. It's just crazy the way the church world has become. So how do we learn to act? I'll give them to you real quick. When we disagree with someone, here's step one. Check your filter. Check your filter. In other words, when you hear somebody say something or you see someone do something or someone does something to you, check your filter. Make sure you're taking it at face value and it's not just your own mind about that person. Okay? Check your filter. Number two, never entertain gossip or slander. Never entertain gossip or slander. Treat it like the plague. Seriously. I wish in the body of Christ, anytime someone walked up to us and they said something about another individual and they hadn't been to that individual first, we would all just yell, sin! Like really loud. Like the Kevin McAllister Home Alone 2 loud. "Ah! Sin! Because that's how the Bible treats it. And it's become such a prevalent part of our culture. We do it with our coworkers. We do it with people in the body of Christ. We do it with our family members. And we, we can't do it. Number three. This might have been needing to be number two, but it's three. Go to them privately. Ask questions. Don't accuse. The Bible says this. If someone wrongs you or someone says something that you don't understand, it says go to that person person first. What we like to do is we go to someone else and say, hey, did you hear so-and-so say that? What did you think they meant? As if that person is going to understand what so-and-so meant. And you know what we've done? Now we've just got that person ticked off at so-and-so too. But that's okay, because at least it's not, you know, like sexual sin or something. Number four, don't use sarcasm. Okay, don't let it become personal. Stay on topic. Talk about what happened. Talk about the issue. But here's here's what happens in human nature. When we're having a discussion with someone and we feel like we're losing the discussion, we go for the character. Well, you always act like that or you never say you're wrong or you this or you're, you know. We attack character instead of staying on the topic. Okay? Don't let it become personal. And number five, and we'll come back to this over the next couple of weeks because this will be important. We agree to disagree. We agree to disagree because here's a little secret. Every one of us in this room don't have to agree on everything, and we won't. And there's not as much right and wrong in our preferences as we'd like to think. A lot of times it's really just a preference. So, all right, the third one, and now I have one minute. Connection isn't optional, it's foundational. It isn't optional, it's foundational. Jesus said, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. And I've already covered this in great detail. When the church starts living like this, connected, treating it as foundational, not optional, our evangelism will be more effective. It will. People will believe what we say because they see the glory of God on the body of Christ. So when they see us get hurt, and yet we fight to stay connected. When they see us disagree, but we fight to stay connected. When they see us loving each other the way Jesus commanded us to love, that connection, it's good. It it actually makes our evangelism more effective. So connection isn't optional. It's foundational. We see it in the life of Joseph. Remember when Joseph got sold by his brothers into slavery? In fact, I think I have that scripture. He said, don't be afraid. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. See, when we get hurt, we don't act like Joseph. But the problem is, we think the reason we're not king is because of them. That person took something from me. And we don't see God's hand in taking the evil they meant for us and using it for good. And we think they're the reason we are where we are. But can I tell you the reason we are where we are is because we've chosen it. Because when we allow what hardships come into our lives to shape and to mold us, God doesn't bring them into our lives, but he uses them. And when we develop the type of character that he wants us to have, then he'll lift us up. He could look at Joseph and realize, Joseph's ready now. Joseph served me faithfully in Potiphar's house. He served me faithfully in the prison. He's ready. When I put him in the kingship, he's not going to kill his brothers. Some of us, if he made us king over our brothers, we'd kill them. And we blame them instead of taking the responsibility on ourselves. So you and I have been called to live in a kingdom community and I believe this kingdom community is what restoration is all about. It really is. And so I want us to end today with the same question that I asked earlier. Is your, our life together embodying God's kingdom to the world around you? If so, how? Don't just say yes. Find examples of how that's actually happening. And if you can't, don't say, well, if only the leadership would do something different, or if only my spouse would do something different, or if only other people would do, what needs to change in me? And here's what we're going to do, because I don't want to give a a public altar call today. I don't want you to raise your hand and say, hey, uh, everybody that wants to be on God's side, raise your hand. Um, Because some of you will raise your hand just because you'll be like, I'm ticked off at him right now, but I'm raising my hand because I don't want people to think I'm going to hell. And so some people would raise their hand and really do nothing about it. And some people, you're ticked off at me right now, but in a few moments when you calm down, the Holy Spirit will come alongside you and you'll actually put into practice today what I said more than people who laughed today. I mean, that's the reality of the kingdom. The initial reaction isn't always the long-term result. And so what I want you to do, I know it's already past 1130, but if you can take just a couple moments after I pray and answer that question to yourself and say, God, what's that one thing that I need to do different right now? What what could I change to start being connected to this body in a better way as a whole? What needs to happen? Our prayer team is going to come to the front again. If you need prayer for something, we'll be available to you, but... I read, and I'll leave you with this quote. I read a quote by Senator Rounds a few weeks ago in The Plainsman. He was talking about partisan politics and the nature of partisan politics right now and what's going to happen and what needs to happen. And he talked about how we just need to tone down the rhetoric and we need to change the way we talk to each other. And I mean, it would have been a great message for today. But they asked him at the end, well, who goes first? Well, therein lies the problem. Who goes first? Nobody wants to go first. Well, I'll change when they change. And so today, I hope every one of us is just willing to be the one to go first. And so, Father, put that in our hearts. God, ultimately, you already went first. And not one of us would be here if you hadn't. And so in the same way that you demonstrated first love for us, God, help us to see it in a better way than we ever have before and help us to be willing to go first, to connect ourselves to the body of Christ in a way that brings you glory on this earth, in the way that brings people into the kingdom. God, we wanna be a model for it. Make Restoration Church all about first love where you have every part of our lives And we lay down our lives for you and for one another and for every person that we meet. Holy Spirit, take the things that we've spoken about today and over these last seven weeks and put them deep in our hearts. May they put down deep roots into our lives and bring transformation to our families, to our body, to our city we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need to be dismissed, you're free to be dismissed. If you want to spend some time quietly in prayer, do that. Um, If you need to be dismissed, do it quietly and let those that want to spend some time in prayer do that before they go. God bless you as you go.